Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 8 is where we are, as you probably noticed. And uh, thank you, sir. Thank you, guys. So, mate, we're going to talk about our true identity. Grab your sermon sermon notes out also. The book of Psalms is a medicine chest for soul healing and keeping. We've been working our way through psalms this summer. Whatever you are going through, there is a psalm for that. Whatever you're going through, there's a psalm for that. Psalm 8 will, will do some soul healing and keeping as it relates to our identity. Look at your sermon notes there, part of the intro. It's really important you understand this. Our culture imposes on us, our culture imposes on us an identity formation process. An identity formation process that if we are not vigilant as Christians, we will be more conformed to this world than transformed by God's word. Without our permission, the world does this, and even without our awareness at times, so we need to become more aware of what's going on in our culture. And the consequences are dire if we are more conformed to this world than transformed by God's word. The consequences are dire. We become more like chaff blown every which way when we hit the hard circumstances of life versus being that tree that's planted by streams of water and we become drought proof as we talked about back in Psalm 1. The consequences are dire if our lives are being more conformed by this world than being transformed by God's word. I'm I'm convinced, and this is one of my strong arguments for Christianity, Christianity gives us an identity that is the most unshakable, inclusive, freeing, and satisfying identity you could ever, ever, ever have. And so this is what we're looking at this morning, so obviously we're going to have to define this idea of identity. What is identity? That's the first question. Second question is what the world says about our identity. And then we'll finish up by talking about what God's word says about our true identity as it relates to Psalm 8. So let's answer that first question here. What is an identity? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, Paul says, he instructs us, put off the old self and put on the new self. In essence, he's telling us, put off the old identity. Now that you're a believer in Christ, you're following him, put off the old 
identity and put on the new identity that you have in Jesus Christ, the new self. He uses this word self. And uh, by the way, this section, these two questions, what is an identity and what the world says about our identity is from Timothy Keller's book, Making Sense of God. It's really a great resource here. And so this idea of self, that's our first fill in the blank, self. It is a sense of self. What is an identity? It is a sense of self, sense of self. And so it is a sense of self, and it answers the question, what are you living for? What are you living for? What got you out of bed in the morning, this morning, and every morning? You're living for something. Everyone lives for something. When you have nothing to live for, that's when you become a bit suicidal. And uh, you, just, you just throw in the towel. You're very depressed. But what are you living for? In fact, everybody on this planet, everybody in here, everybody out there in the world, whether consciously or subconsciously, we are saying this to ourselves. If I have that, if I acquire that, if I accomplish that, if I achieve that, whatever the that is, then I know that my life will have a sense of meaning, purpose, and happiness. And we typically do that with with created things as opposed to the creator. So what are you living for? What drives your life? What are you living for? So it's a sense of self, but it's also a sense of worth. So it is a sense of self, answering the question, what are you living for, and a sense of worth. That's your next fill in the blank. And a sense of worth. How well are you achieving it? So if you're living for your work, that's what gets you out of bed in the morning to go to work. You feel really good about yourself through your work. And how well are you doing at work or in your career or any number of things? Now, this next statement on your notes is really important to understand this idea of identity. Identity is something that is true about you. It's identical, identity, identical in all of your roles and situations in life. So I have various roles. I'm a son, husband, father, pastor, a number of other roles. So what's true about me? What's identical about me in all of those roles? And what's identical or true about me in all life circumstances? No matter whether it's a good day, bad day, ugly day, it doesn't matter. What's true about about me? And what's true about you? Regardless of what's going on in your life, in all your roles, in all situations of life. What is it that gives your life stability in all your roles in every life situation? If there is nothing true about you in all your roles and circumstances of life, then you are nothing more than a bunch of roles and masks. There needs to be something at the core of who you are that gives you stability. Now, as Christians... As Christians, what's supposed to be at the core of who we are? What what is our identity? Well, the word Christian means Christ-like. We are to be more and more like Jesus. So our identity formation process, spiritual disciplines, that's why you're here this morning. It's one of the part of the identity formation process, going to church, reading your Bible, praying, is to make you more like Jesus, Christ-likeness. And believe me, that that gives you a significance and a security that you can endure, you can face anything in life, no matter what life, what comes at, at you, whatever you experience in life. And not only that, it gives you a consistency in all of your roles. And so, now let's talk about what the world says about our identity. What does the world say about our identity? And there's both a traditional and a modern view here. And the traditional view is 
Duty over desires. Duty over desires. That's your fill in the blank there. You look outward. You sacrifice your desires to fulfill your duties for the greater good of your marriage, family, society, community, team, whatever it might be. And then the people within those groups bestow honor on you. They give you worth. They give you value. So you have a sense of self because you're fulfilling your duty. And then those around you applaud you. And so you feel good about yourself. That's, it. That's the traditional view. It's about following the rules and fitting in. That's the traditional view. The modern view is desires over duty. So the traditional view is duty over desires. Modern view is desires over duty. You look inward. So duty over desires. The traditional view, you look outward. Modern is desires over duty. You look inward. You follow your heart. You be true to yourself. You determine right and wrong for yourself. You demand that people in society recognize a line in sacrifice for you. You and you alone are the decisive validator, and our culture is supposed to accept you for who you are. It's about being tolerant, open-minded, and standing out. Now, both of these, neither one of these are, are really the Christian identity, by the way. You, uh, some, t- some people confuse the traditional as the Christian identity, and it's not. And so neither one of these are a Christian identity. In fact, let me give you some illustrations here of, uh, of this. One great illustration is found in Luke chapter 15 of, of the lost sons. We kind of look at that. It's the, the prodigal son. We look at the one son as being lost. Actually, both sons are lost. And so you got the younger son. How many are familiar with the story I'm talking about there, 15th chapter of, of Luke? Yeah. So, so you got one son who wants his inheritance early before dad dies, which was an, a, a, an offense to dad. So he takes all of his inheritance and he runs off and spends it on crazy wild living. And so he would represent which one of these identity, uh, identity formation processes. That would be the modern. It's desires over duty. Forget dad. Forget my responsibilities on the farm. I'm going to go live however I want to live. But the older brother, oftentimes we think, well, he's such, the, he's such a good boy. No, no, actually, he's messed up too. His is duty over desire. And uh, he's got an attitude. And you can see that by how he responds to when the younger brother comes home. He's appalled. He's upset. He's angry. And uh, what's interesting, so he represents more of the traditional view, and neither one of the sons love the father. They are using the father to get his stuff. The younger son is breaking all the rules, thinking that's where he's going to find happiness, and, uh, and, and the older son is keeping all the rules. I'm going to keep all the rules, and, and therefore, that's where I'm going to get my happiness, and neither one of them are right in that uh, and so they're both, uh, they're both lost. And, uh, and so it's, it's fascinating as you kind of, they're both using the father to get his stuff. Now, all of us tend to fall into one of those two categories, by the way. And sometimes we go back and forth between the two. And sometimes we confuse, we go from modern to traditional. We, we go to a church that's very legalistic and they teach us a traditional view. Some of you have come out of that. And that's called legalism. It's not actually very healthy. So let me give you a more modern view from a movie, from the movie uh, Frozen. If you're familiar with that movie, if you, have, uh, if you have little girls or granddaughters, you know, they've watched this so many times that you can probably sing the song uh, of Elsa there in the movie. Elsa from the movie Frozen goes from traditional to modern identity. 
In fact, let me give you some excerpts from Elsa's song. In fact, let me, let me, allow me to sing this to you. Oh, some of you are going, no. Yes, yes. Okay, no, 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 no. No, no, you don't want me to sing this. So let me give you some excerpts. See if you can identify where she goes from uh, the traditional. She goes from traditional to a modern view. And so uh, this is part of the song. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl. You always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. So that's the, uh, that's the traditional, which they say traditional. You suppress your feelings. It's duty over desire. So you can see that. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Well, now they know. Let it go. Oh, she's transitioning here. Let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go. Let it go. So she's moved right into the modern. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. You don't care what anybody says. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Can you see it? She's not free. No, that she moved right from the traditional view to the modern view. And um, thank you very much. Now, here's the problem with both the traditional and modern identity. Here's the, here's the problem with both uh, the, the world's identity. If your identity, think about this, if your identity, how you feel good about yourself, by the way, identity is about getting a sense of self and then validation for that, for that self, it's that sense of worth. So if your identity, how you feel good about yourself is your, your race, your profession, your political party, your affluence, your morality, And if that identity factor is crucial to your goodness or feeling good about yourself, you will naturally feel superior to those who don't have your identity factor and inferior to those who have more than you have of that identity factor. One of the reasons why you see such hatefulness between the two major parties in our country today is it's political idolatry. It's their identity. And that's why you have such animosity back and forth between the two parties. And that's what's going on. It's their identity. It becomes your identity. And it's your sense of uh, self and well-being and your sense of worth. And when that's under attack, of course, you're going to attack back. You typically do that. And uh, so when you must perform to be validated, that's what these two identities are about. This is what the world's identities are all about. You perform and then you're validated. So when you must perform to be validated to feel good about yourself, whether it be traditional or modern, then success will go to your head, it will inflate you, and failure will go to your heart, it will deflate you. So, I mean, it just, it just makes sense. And uh, if you get your identity out of, uh, when you must perform to be validated, it just, it just makes sense that... Uh, that if my sense of identity is in my work, for instance, it, it, it's, it, let's just say your identity is in your work, or, or let's say for me, it's in, it's in, if my identity was in ministry, and I've seen, and I've struggled with this for years, and I hope, thank God he's rescued me from this, 
But I see pastors out there that their identity is wrapped up in ministry. And if you're involved in ministry here at Desert Breeze, it, it, and so you're involved in ministry. If I ask you, so why are you involved in ministry? Because it makes me feel good about, about me, about myself. You might not say it quite like that, but I, I feel really good. I feel really good about doing ministry. Well, then it's not really about the ministry or the, or the work that you're doing. You're not doing it for the people you are helping and serving. You're doing it for yourself. Do you see that? Am I, am I here for me? Or am I here because I'm so filled up with him that I want to minister to you and help you to see him? Does that make sense? So that's, it's totally different. It's, are, you, are, you working, are you working for your identity or are you working from your identity in Christ? And the same thing uh, with romance or getting married or having kids. Why, why did you get married? Why, why would anybody ever get married? I didn't, I didn't mean to say it quite like that. I'm just kidding. That was a, that was a bad joke. And some of you got it. Some of you are worried about me. So, uh, so why, would you, why would you get married? Why would you want to have kids? I mean, any number of things. And so, that's, so you've got to really think about about this, there's a difference between working for your identity and working from your identity. If you're working for your identity, then that is very, very self-serving, very self-centered, and makes everything a means to an end. It's about, it's about you feeling good about yourself rather than working from an identity that you have in Christ. You're already filled up in him, and man, you just want to give out. So if your identity is in, and you can fill in the blank, so what would be yours? You need to be able to identify that. You need to be so in touch with yourself, you know, you know what you tend to chase after over and above that of Christ. You're, you're getting your identity in, in something. You're getting a sense of self and worth from something or someone. And so if your identity is in, fill in the blank, work, romance, money, marriage, having children, the success of your children, or maybe it's in what our culture really preaches, I am what I do, my performance, which I felt that for many years, still struggle with that, performance, it, it drives workaholism and perfectionism, or I am what I have, my possessions, never really struggled with that one, and then I am what others think, popularity, I have struggled with that one, so fill in the blank. If your identity is in any of those things, if your identity is in anything more than Christ, think about this. So you got your identity in something more than Christ. Let's just say your job. Believe me, when that job is threatened, you're not just gonna be anxious, you're gonna be paranoid. Because your identity, your sense of self, your sense of worth is in that. And, and if, it's, if it's blocked in some way that you didn't get that promotion you thought you deserved, you're not just going to be angry, you're going to be bitter. That's how much it has a hold of your heart. How many have ever seen irate parents at little league games? You guys know what I'm talking about? Um, it's like, why? Because their identity is so wrapped up in the performance of their kids. They think that their kids are going to be, you know, world-class, you know, athletes and and I, no, they're not. They're not going to be. Very few are world-class athletes, and they're so mad at the coach for not putting their son in, and they're so mad at the ref, refs and umpires, and it's just like, chill out. 
You're wrecking the game. And so that's because they're, something's being blocked. They're not just angry, they're bitter. Something really, really important to them is being blocked. And then, and let's just say that you lose your job. It's lost, and it's your identity, your, your sense of self and worth. You're not just going to be sad. You're going to be depressed and possibly suicidal. I'm just giving you some really, help, really good help on your psychology and how this all works out. This is really important. And this is what you need to know. Everybody look up here. No human relationship. No human relationship, no political party, no race, no profession can bear the burden of being your savior. No created thing can bear the burden of being your savior. And that's what you're trying to do. I love my wife dearly. Nancy makes a great wife, but a terrible savior. Because I know I tried to get her to save me in the first couple decades of our marriage relationship. I nearly wrecked our marriage because I, I crushed her under the weight of unrealistic expectations I had of her. I tried to get from her what I should have been getting from God. And I, and I really, really messed it up in a lot of ways. How many have ever seen that classic scene in the movie Jerry Maguire where Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise, says to Dorothy Boyd, played by... Uh, Renee Zellweger, I love you. You complete me. You guys know what I'm talking about? In that, in that, and then she says something really stupid after that. She goes, shut up. <laughs> shut up. You had me at hello. Oh, sick. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. I, I had to say that. But it's like, Really? She completes you? No, she doesn't. That's insane. And, you know, it's interesting. This is what I've found, and this is just from a married guy of 40-plus years to all the singles that are in here, uh, that no person can complete you. Only Christ can. And, and a fallible, listen to me, a fallible temporal person cannot complete you. Only the infallible, eternal God can do that. And then you get married and you'll have, a, you'll have a good marriage if both of you are doing that. You'll have a great marriage. Insecure, lonely singles become insecure, lonely married people. And, and so our identity is in Christ. And, and then also we need to keep in mind too this idea. It helps us to understand our emotions. And that's what this whole series is about, to really help us with our emotions, our feelings. So when it comes to feelings, the traditional view, traditional identity, it says stuff your feelings. It's duty over desire. The modern says live by your feelings. It's desire over duty. But the Bible teaches us, and this is where we move into what the Psalm 8 talks about the Bible teaches us reorder your feelings by loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then you will love everything else and love everybody else appropriately, keeping them in their proper place. And so what, what God's word says about our true identity, this is Psalm 8. Now we got to Psalm 8, and here's a couple thoughts before we kind of work through this list. The validation in Christianity, our validation comes before our performance, 
Did you know that? That's the opposite of the world's view. The world's view is your performance comes before your validation. You perform, and you're going to get the applause. The Bible says, no, you get the applause before the performance. That's what drives the performance is the applause. So, so the validation comes before the performance. It is, it is the only identity on this planet that is received and not achieved. Every other belief system on this planet, look, look at all the different major religions and cults in our world today. Their identity is based on achieving. You do these things and then you get the applause of God, he accepts you, he blesses you. Christianity isn't like that. You get the blessing and acceptance of Christ and, and then your performance comes out of that. Now. What matters is not what the society says about me. This is, what we, this is the battle inside of all, all of us. It's not what society says about me looking outward. That's the traditional view. Or what I say about me looking inward. That's the modern view. But what God says about me, that's looking upward. That's the gospel view. Now, I'm gonna give you application statements here in this uh, second part of the study here. These are application statements and then I'll show you where I got them through observation and interpretation of the text and then the fuller context of scripture. If you're taking Darren's class on how to study the Bible, in that class you, you learn observation, interpretation, application. That's how you study the Bible, by the way. Observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? Um, application, how do I apply it to my life? I'm working backwards here, and I'm gonna give you the application statements, and then we'll look at the observation interpretation to point back to that application statement. So here's the first application statement. So this is true identity validation. This is what is ours in Christ. God reveals himself to us. So you're gonna see he reveals himself to us, he redeems us, and then God is ravished with us. Those are the three. But let's work on that first one here. God reveals himself to us. Verse one of our text, he says, O Lord, our Lord, the word Lord, all capital letters, oh, Lord is the personal name for God, Yahweh. So he says, oh, Yahweh, our Adonai, is what that word means, the Lord, which means you are the king of the universe, you are sovereign. Oh, Yahweh, intimacy with God, you are the creator of the heavens. And it just, as he expresses that, Oh, Lord, how majestic, that word majestic, having or showing impressive dignity, beauty, and greatness. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So here's my question. How do we know there's a God? How do we know there's a God? Well, not by human speculation, but by divine revelation. Because God has revealed himself to us. So the next question would be, well, and by the way, if someone asks you, well, how do you know there's a God? You can say, well, it's because he's revealed himself to us. And then leave it at that and let them see if they ask the next question. Well, how's that? Okay, knucklehead, come over here and I'll tell you. He's revealed himself to us. No, don't say that. But uh, don't say everything that I say up here. Okay. But uh, you just say, it's It's amazing. He reveals himself to us, and what he's saying in that first verse, he reveals himself to us through creation. I don't know if you notice this, but uh, as, he, as he says, how majestic, how majestic is your name, character in all the earth. Notice this, he says, you have set your glory 
above the heavens. Above the heavens? As I reflected on that, I thought, what? It's, be, it's above, the, it's beyond. It's beyond what you even see. We know that there's a God because he's revealed himself to us. How has he done that? Through creation. You've set your glory above the heavens. We know this based on Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. In fact, it even says that there's not a place on this planet where his, that voice is not heard. So everybody can hear that voice if they have ears to hear. And it's, uh, it's really nonverbal communication. It's, but they, they can hear if they have the ears to hear. Romans 1, 19 through 21 says that man is without excuse because of the revelation of God through creation. Man has no excuse to, to, to not, you know, to believe in God. I mean, if, if you don't believe in God, the Bible says, you don't have excuse. Look at creation. It's all around us. And so God reveals himself to us through crea- creation. Let me read to you some. Let me kind of help you to understand that. So his glory is above the heavens. So if the Milky Way galaxy, that's the galaxy that we live in, Milky Way galaxy, were the size of North America, envision that on the map. We live in North America. Is that true? Okay, so we're here in North America, and so if the Milky Way galaxy were the size of North America, our solar system would be the size of maybe, maybe this cup, this, this bottle right here. Our solar system and our Earth would be just a microscopic speck in, in our solar system, and where, where are you in all that? You're even smaller than that. Now, now listen, just to kind of put things in perspective, listen to what Louis Giglio says in his book, Indescribable. He says, there are somewhere between 100 and 200 billion galaxies in the universe. Let me read that again because I know that you didn't really, you're just like, oh, yeah, okay, I knew that. And uh, no, you didn't know that. Uh, and you don't even know the weight of that. You don't even know and understand wh- how big that is. There are somewhere between 100 and 200 billion. I said billion, billion. One billion is a thousand million. Okay, that's big. That's a lot. And, and so 100 to 200 billion galaxies. We're just one of one, 200 billion galaxies. Milky Way galaxy in the universe, each containing hundreds of billions of stars, and most scientists agree there still seems to be no end in sight. He's above, his glory is above. How far does that go? We don't know. His glory is above the heavens. It's infinite, it's eternal, it's a mind blower. And, uh, Astronomers believe there to be more stars in the visible universe, what we know to be there, than there are grains of sand on all of the world's beaches and deserts. And the Bible tells us that God names and numbers the stars. Our God names and numbers the stars. Is that crazy or what? So the heavens and the earth, the universe, is not just a masterpiece, a masterpiece, but a message showing us that God is indescribably glorious, majestic, and beautiful. But to understand his unimaginable goodness, I think you get glimpses of it through creation, but to really understand his unimaginable goodness, we have to look to his word. 
and he's written it down. So how do we know there's a God? He's revealed himself to us through creation, but also through his word. And in his word, he's revealed to us his covenant with us, covenant. And that's where you have David with, he starts off with the covenant name of God. Oh, Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Your glory is above the heavens. You hear the passion and the enthusiasm and the depth of what he's saying there. It's just absolutely stunningly beautiful as he's just like, oh my goodness, and I have an intimate relationship with this God who created everything. Yahweh is what he's saying there. And so, and we know that Genesis 15 talks about that. So David was certainly familiar with the Torah, first five books of the Bible. So he understood this covenant relationship with God and how God pursued him. So we know that there's a God through creation. We also know because he pursued us. He wrote it down and he talked to us and he pursued us with covenant love, his covenant relationship with us. In fact, the word Lord Yahweh, this is a proper name like Peter or John built out of the word uh, for I am. I am that I am. It's found as as God was revealing himself to Moses there in uh, Exodus chapter 3. Now, let me just talk about this very briefly because I, don't want, I want you to understand how this all fits in to this sense of identity. Um, so, so religion, religion, elder brother, legalism would say this, I obey, therefore God accepts me. Duty over desire. I just got to do what's right and then God will accept me and then he will bless me. That's the elder brother in the story. That's called religion. A lot of churches teach that. A lot of churches teach that. They'll, they'll pound you with that. Come on, come on. They'll just beat the living daylights out of you. Irreligion or the younger brother is, is real, more liberalism. God accepts me, therefore I don't have to obey. That's desire over duty. I can, and there's churches in our, in our community. You, yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your sexual orientation is or anything like that. God just loves everybody. And we can just, you know, we can do whatever we want to do. Let your desires lead the way. That's called liberalism. But covenant relationship is what David's talking about here. Covenant God, he's referring to him as the covenant God here, is that covenant or gospel or liberty, this is where true freedom is found. God accepts me in Christ, therefore I want to obey. God accepts me in Christ, therefore I want to obey. Our desire and our duty are one in the same. He transforms my heart, and I want him more than anything. So he comes to me and he says, hey, I'm going to establish covenant relationship with you. I'm going to bless you. And as I bless you, this is how I want you to live. By the way, if you want to, oftentimes people look at the Old Testament and think, well, that's, that's all duty over desire. No, 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 no. Actually, where's the Ten Commandments found in the book of Exodus? It's found in the book of Exodus. Okay, got that. But no, what chapter? 20. Yeah, it's 20. Exodus 20 gives us, gives us the Ten Commandments. That would be our duty. But you know what that's preceded by? Chapter 19, of course, and, uh, which, is, which is covenant. He says, I love you. You're my treasured people. I have rescued you out of Egyptian bondage. Do you see your identity in me? Now, out of that, Exodus 20, I want you to live this way. So your, 
Your desire and your duty are one and the same pursuit. Man, you fall in love with him, and of course, I want to live for his glory. That's what it is. So he reveals himself to us. Here's the next one. He redeems us. I got to get rolling here. You guys are going to be here until noon. God redeems us. Now, this next verse is kind of, uh, when, I, when you read it, you go, what is that all about? Anybody read, when you read this, it says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Anybody kind of wonder about what that verse is? Because I, have, I don't even have a clue, and so I don't even know what to tell you. I've been studying this like crazy. No, I know, I know what this is about because I took a lot of study. David not only tells us of God's creation and covenant, but also is speaking prophetically of God's redemption here in this verse. See, in verse two here, David is assuming the fall. He's assuming the fall and says that this world is filled with enemies and, and what is God going to do about the evil? Well, he says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength, or some translators say praise, because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger, to shut up the enemy and the avenger. So what is that all about? Well, you only know this because Jesus quoted this verse. And he quoted this verse when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, preceding Passion Week when he was gonna be hanging on the cross. And he's writing in on Palm Sunday, and the people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. He's our redeemer. And the religious leaders are really upset, and they go to Jesus, and they say, hey, do you hear what those people are saying? And it's classic Jesus, how he responds. He says, do you hear what those people are saying? And he goes, yes. It's about me. He came to redeem us. And that's what Jesus is using as he's referring back to this. He quotes this verse. He says, I'm the redeemer. Redemption means the purchase of a slave out of freedom. We are enslaved to sin and suffering in this fallen world. Sin, sins we've committed, suffering, sins committed against us. But God sent his son to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we were condemned to die and rising from the dead to defeat sin and death and offer humanity away to God through his sacrifice. And he did this with such power that not even the gates of hell would be able to stop its advance. And, and that's this idea of redemption. So here's what should be going over your mind. If you're redeemed, if I said, if, I said, if you're a Christian, you've been redeemed, what are the implications of that? What does that mean? Well, this is part of your identity. I mean, I, we could stay all day just talking about that. You are forgiven of all your sins. That's what it means to be redeemed. You're forgiven of all your sins, of all your sins. sins. You're reconciled to God. So you're in right relationship with God. You're adopted into his family. You're a child of God. You're, you're indwelt and empowered by his Holy Spirit. You're lavished with his love. Daily, he offers his love to you and you're guaranteed a place in heaven. That's part of redemption. You should be reveling in that every day. There is no sin or suffering that is, that is a match for God's redeeming grace. No matter what you're going through, whatever sin you're struggling with, whatever sin has been committed against you, God can get you through that and bring healing to your life. That's part of your identity. You're not defined by what you do or what has been done to you. You're defined by what Jesus has done for you. That's the definition of your life. And that's what you've got to always remember. 
There's only one thing you need, though, if you want to receive his redemption. All you need is need. All you need is need. That's why he says here, it's out of the lips of infants and babies, babies and children. It just, that's, that's what it is. All you need is need. Our biggest problem is not our weaknesses, but our illusions of strength. And so it's out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 3, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so, so, so you enter into that just by saying, I can't, I can't save myself. No, you can't. And so I'm going to rely on Jesus. Yes. And by the way, you can't sanctify yourself either. So you need to rely on Jesus. You need to trust in him. You need to look to him. You need to walk with him. You need to love him. You need to experience him each and every day in your life. So he has revealed himself to us. He redeems us. But then he is, God is ravished with us. That's the next fill in the blank. God loves us, adores us, and rejoices over us, his people. I love verses three and four. I think they're my favorite in this uh, in this, but uh, I love it all. Okay, I love every bit of this chapter. It's really good. But three and four are just really outstanding. Notice what he says here. When I look, he's, he's gazing into the heavens. This is David. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. I mean, did you hear what he's, he's like, oh my goodness, my mind is blown. I can't believe that the God of the galaxies would even care about me and love me. But it's true. That's what he's saying. Now, as you kind of go through this and you think about it, you reflect on it, the word there for fingers uh, Phil in our staff meeting this last week said it's like a craftsman or an artist setting jewels in a crown, and that's what the commentators say. The reason why it's using fingers is because God's putting the stars and the moon in place like he's a craftsman or an artist. So you how great God is, how majestic he is. Now, he says these two things, mindful. Mindful? Why would he say mindful? Well, the Bible in other places says, Psalm 139, 17 and 18, says that his thoughts about us outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. How many are familiar with that, with those verses? It's It's phenomenal. How mindful is he of us? Well, they outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. Next time you go to the ocean, start thinking about that. That's, that's a mind blower. It also tells us in Psalm 56, 8, God is so mindful of us with such detail that he keeps a record of every tear. He cares about us. Yeah, what's interesting about this in verse 4, King James Version, I doubt if anybody has a King James Version here. Um, some of you are like, what's a King James Version anyway? And, um, but King James Version says, the son of man that you visit him. And that's actually an accurate translation. The word care means in the Hebrew, go out and find. So not only is he mindful of me, but he comes after me to find me. To be involved in my life is what it's saying here. So what is David thinking here? Who are we that you think about us and visit us? And David was not only a shepherd and a king, but also a prophet. Acts 2.30 tells us that. So in the New Testament, we know that God came down and did visit us through his son, Jesus Christ. And the ultimate proof that he cares for us is that, that the God of 
the universe cares for us. He came down and visited us to redeem us. Luke 1.68, it says, uh, at the birth of Christ, Zechariah's prophecy says this. He says this in his prophecy. The Lord God visited and redeemed his people. So here's what, he's, what David's saying. This is how we can kind of understand this. We are specks of dust in the vastness of the universe, and yet he thinks about us. And he cares about us. He interacts with us. He comes on the rescue for us. If he loves you so much that he is mindful of you and cares for you, why would you ever be afraid of anything? But we are because we forget that. We don't understand that. We're not thinking enough about that. Listen to this language of love and passion welling up within God. This is just some some other verses in the scripture here. Uh, Psalm 18, Psalm 18, 19. Uh, this is what I was reading this last week in my devotions. This is David speaking. He says, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Isaiah 62, 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. I've done a number of weddings, and it's really cool to be able to stand up next to the groom and watch. I, I typically will watch his expression as the bride comes down the aisle, and it's all you can do to contain him. Oh, oh. He's like, just rejoicing. It's like, and so if that happens with us humans, he's just saying, oh, yeah, I'm your God. I rejoice over you. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. Jeremiah 32, 4, 41, I will rejoice in doing them good with all of my heart and all my soul. So he doesn't do this. He doesn't do this. He doesn't rejoice over us and adore us and love us because we're amazing, okay? It's because he's amazing, okay? Okay, I, I've heard teaching out there that says he does that because we're really amazing. You're really amazing. And that's not true. That's not because of that. He didn't do this because of what, who we are, but because of who he is. Remember, validation comes before the performance, He doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us in order to make us that way. He transforms us. So he doesn't, it's not because of who we are, but because of who he is, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. That's always the emphasis. And uh, and so that's, that's, that's part of that. This should so fill you with awe and wonder of this God who reveals himself to us, redeems us, and is ravished by us that everything else in life is inconsequential. Can't get a date? Didn't get the dream house or car? Didn't get the promotion? Didn't get accepted into the school or on the team you've always hoped for? Listen to me. The eyes, the only eyes in the universe that matter looks at you and loves you and adores you more than all the wealth in this world. Revel in that. Enjoy that. Celebrate that. Let that go down deep into your heart. That's your identity. Our identity is being like Jesus, but that being like Jesus comes from us being with Jesus. Don't focus and be preoccupied with being like Jesus. Oh, I need to work harder at being like Jesus. Well, you're becoming religious when you do that, okay? Don't do that. No, just spend time with him. And let him tell you how much he loves you and adores you and values you. And it will transform you. You become like him when you focus on being being with him. 
Unless you're esteemed by somebody you esteem, you'll, you'll have no self-esteem. Look at this next statement on your notes. This is from J.R.R. Tolkien from Lord of the Rings. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Now let me ask you this. Why do we have the bookends, the bookends of the, that verse, verse one and verse nine, very same, the bookends are saying, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then he ends with that. Why is that? Because praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. It's, it's only when you begin to see how wonderful and great God is will it bring a sense of value in who you are. When someone you adore adores you, it is like heaven. Albert Einstein had, a, had very little use for organized religion because he felt like he had seen more glory in the heavens than what most American preachers were talking about from their pulpits. And that was many, many years ago, and I don't think it's changed. I think it's even gotten worse. All of our problems, listen to me, all of your problems, all of my problems are either because we don't really know God or we have forgotten who he is. And this true identity will produce this. This is our performance. Okay, I'm almost finished. Hang in there. You guys are doing really well this morning. So here here it is. This is what it should produce in us. We're gonna reflect his glory and we're gonna reign in life. So you, got, so you got validation, that first validation. He reveals himself to me, he redeems me, and he's ravished with me. Then out of that fullness, out of that fullness, I reorder my loves and I reorder all my desires and feelings and all of that, and this is what I'm gonna reflect his glory. By the way, verses five through eight is a recapitulation of Genesis one and two, so he's kind of going back to creation. He says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. He's actually quoting Genesis one twenty six. So we've been created in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, this is what it means, that there's a, there's a rational aspect to who we are. We hunger, hunger to learn and know. There's a relational aspect. We hunger to love and be loved. There's an eternal aspect. We, we hunger to last and to, to make our lives count. We hate death. And then there's a creative aspect. We hunger for beauty. And we could continue to add to that. That's just a short list. Listen to what John Piper says as it relates to our, to our identity in the sense of uh, being image bearers of God. He says, the point of an image Image is to image. Images are erected to display the original, to point to the original, glorify the original. God made humans in his image so that the world would be filled with reflectors of God, images of God, seven billion statues of God on this planet. Seven billion statues of God so that nobody would miss the point of creation. Nobody, unless they were stone blind, could miss the point of humanity, namely God, knowing, loving, showing God through our treatment of others. Now, I'm gonna hit you with something really hard here just just for a moment. Every person, every person on this planet starting at conception is an image bearer of God with great dignity, value, and honor regardless of gender, race, status, or ability. Therefore, abortion, racism, hatred, murder, lying, cheating, stealing, adultery is not just a sin against an image bearer, but against the one in whom that image bears. It's a defacing of that statue against the person who created that statue to be like him. (laughs) 
So, we reflect his we reflect his glory not only by our existence, our very existence. Somebody's got their Bible on. Uh, We reflect his glory not only by our very existence, but also by how we treat each other and take care of this planet, but also by finding our deepest satisfaction in him. Because listen to me, everybody look up here, setting aside all the distractions. Here we go, look up here. You were created by God for God to give glory to God, and God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Now this leads us to the very last point. So if you find your deepest satisfaction in him, that's where you bring most glory to him. So if you're living to give glory to God, you can find satisfaction in him, full satisfaction in him, regardless of your circumstances. And you'll be able to reign in life. That's your next reign in life. And that's what he's talking about here, verses six and eight. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That's man before the fall. But since the fall, we've wrecked all of that. We've ruined all of that. And, this, and he's quoting actually Genesis 1.27. This is before the fall of mankind. Our ruling the earth was to come out of our relationship with God. So all human problems, sin and suffering are ultimately symptoms of rebellion and separation from God is the cause. But it tells us in Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 11, quotes verses 4 and 6 of, of Psalm 8, referring to Jesus as coming to reestablish our rulership. And in fact, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, and Ephesians 1, 22, hang in there with me, this is heavy theology, but this is what the Bible's teaching us, that God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. So with his first coming, which was his inauguration, he came to reestablish his kingdom in our lives. With his second coming, which will be the consummation, he will reestablish his kingdom on this planet Earth. So what does it mean for us as Christians to reign in life? What does it mean to reign in life? John 10, 10, Jesus said, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's life. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. So what, that, what he means by that is that not only does he give us a quantity of life that when we die, we will go to be with him for all eternity, but while we're in this life, we're waiting for us to go to be with him, he gives us a quality of life. He gives us a meaning, hope, and a happiness. He gives us love, joy, and peace. Listen to me, that all, all the success in this world cannot give you and all the suffering in this world can never, ever take from you. Praise God. Praise God for that. Next weekend, we're gonna talk about the silence of God. Psalm 13. Let's pray. So Father God, when we consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, how can it be? How can it be that you would lavish us with your love? We are in awe and wonder over the all-powerful hands of our maker that became the nail-pierced hands of our Savior the one who names and numbers the stars and holds all things together, humbled himself, became a servant, dying in our place for our sins, giving us our true identity. Of all the mysteries of the universe, this is the greatest. May this true identity we have in Christ Jesus capture our hearts and imaginations more than anything else and help us, help us, Father, to, to reinforce these truths through spiritual disciplines deep in our hearts and also through our community here at Desert Breeze as we interact with one another so that we can have an identity that is bomb-proof, unshakable and unbreakable. 
We pray these things for your glory in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. God bless you.